Amen. What a good word that even though our sins may be many, God's mercy is more. Oh, man, that's so good. I'm also glad to see that you all survived the storm. I think we can just call it that affectionately, and you all know what we're talking about, right? Uh, you guys have survived. I, I think uh, the Ansels are the ones who had were without power the longest, right? Like, it was a few days you guys didn't have power, and you're still here, and you don't smell from what I could tell, so that's great. Uh, we are really grateful for that. Uh, uh, but no, it is a joy to be with you all this morning that we get to open up God's Word, that we get to examine it for our, our gospel transformation by the Spirit of God. You know, I wonder, how would you describe the Christian life? kind of a, a, a broad question. There's a lot of different ways where we might describe it in certain ways, but how, how, what kind of metaphor would you use to describe the Christian life? Is it like a flamingo sticking its head in the sand, pretending to exist in a world that's actually different on the outside? Maybe you would describe the Christian life like a horse buggy in a Ferrari world. Maybe the Christian life is like a mustard seed that seems insignificant and small and then grows into something huge. Maybe you would describe the Christian life like a tree that slowly grows out and up and down. Maybe you would describe the Christian life simply as Jesus take the wheel. Well, in our passage today, Peter describes the Christian life as two things. He describes the Christian life as a war, and as a witness. And those are both important as we follow God faithfully. So let's find out why that is together this morning. So we are going through the book of First Peter, and this morning we are now turning a corner. We are beginning the second half of Peter's letter this morning, remember, to a variety of churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And they're going through suffering, but Peter is calling upon them to stand firm in the hope of the gospel of Jesus that is lived out distinctly in their lives. And so we're going to pick up in the second part of chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. It's toward the end of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. Inside your sermon notes, we have the passage that we're going to be looking at together. Uh, everything that we're going to be studying and thinking about together is going to be right there. And while you're turning there, let us say our verse of the series together. 1 Peter 5.10. I'm sure you guys have all worked on memorizing it this week. Uh, let us say together. It'll be on the screens. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Oh, what a good word that is. Let me pray for us as we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that very prayer, that God, after we have suffered a little while, you who have called us to your eternal glory in Christ, God, we pray that you would restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. Lord, would you do that work even in us this morning as we open up your word? Would your spirit be at work doing that? Help us to see uh, the importance of 
living lives that proclaim your greatness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me give you the roadmap of where we're headed this morning. Uh, here's the big idea, because there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's easy to, to get sidetracked on some of the hot-button topics that we're going to be looking at this morning. But here's, here's where we're going that we want you to walk away with this morning. Now, as God's people through Jesus live lives that proclaim God's greatness. That's the big idea that we, I think Peter is getting at um, from 1 Peter 2, verses 11, all the way through 25. Now, as God's people through Jesus live lives that proclaim God's greatness. And we're going to look at this just kind of in two really easy parts. We're going to look at verses 11 to 17, uh, this war and witness. And then we're going to look at verses 18 to 25 at Christ's example. So let me begin reading in verse 11, where Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, congratulations. You guys have made it. We are now halfway through the letter. In fact, chapter 2, verse 11 is the beginning of the second half of Peter's letter. And, and uh, different theologians and commentaries are saying that verses 11 and 12 don't only oversee the theme for this morning, but, but they are a good summary for the whole rest of Peter's letter. Uh, so remember, the first half of the letter was about the believer's relationship to God. Remember that God's mercy has saved us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus that we are promised an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you, believer. And verse 23 of chapter 1 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. As we see that this salvation, our salvation comes not by our own strength, but actually through the word of God that is living and active at work in our lives by the spirit of God. And so now the second half of the letter that Peter's writing puts kind of hands and feet to what it means to be holy since God is holy, right? Remember if, we, if you read that last week or the other week, you're thinking, man, that is a tall order because I am not anything like God. And so to be holy like God is holy, how do I even begin to consider what that looks like? Well, the first thing that Peter tells them this morning is that they're not just friends, 
But the word that's used there is a, a Greek word that really just means beloved by God. And so to rightly understand our place in the Christian world, we must first recognize our position before God. Nothing else is going to make sense if God isn't the center that we revolve around. Right? So the earth cannot stop revolving around the sun or it would cease to exist. Uh, the, the same is true for Christians. Our lives find our design around God. And because we are God's beloved, because we belong to God, we therefore do not belong to the world. And so Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles in verse 11 to remind us that this is not our home. No matter how many years of stuff that is stacking up in your basement because you don't want to get rid of it because someday 30 years from now you might use it. No matter how long you've been stacking that stuff up, this isn't home. Believers are actually aliens in this world. But we're like foreigners because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so if the world is not our home, if we are to be at home with Christ to our glorious inheritance, then that means that our lives in this world matter before we get there. And so sojourners and exiles, we are to abstain from the passions of our flesh. Our natural desires that human beings have uh, that's apart from the work of the Spirit uh, because we live in a fallen world, that's what Peter is talking about in our flesh. Our fleshly passions don't stop simply because we become Christians. And I think this verse is instructive for us because it informs us that those who have the Spirit of God, who are sealed for the day of redemption, are not exempt from fleshly desires. Such desires cannot even only be confined to sexual sins or sins of the body like drunkenness. No, no, we've actually already seen just last week in chapter 2, verse 1, we already saw that believers are warned against sins like slander and envy. And so the depth of the struggle that, that we as believers engage in is explained by these words that Peter uses. He says, describing the struggle, he says, which wage war against your soul. It is so intense of a battle that Peter describes it as waging war against us. Fellow Christians, fellow sojourners and exiles, the Christian life is a battle. Pick any epic battle scene from any of your recent favorite movies, right? Lord of the Rings, Blood Diamond, any of that kind of stuff. You get the idea, right? Uh, our fleshly desires wage war against us. And so our goal as believers empowered by the Spirit is to conquer evil desires with things that we struggle with. And that's no easy matter. The Christian life is certainly not depicted as a, as a passive life where we just simply get to let go and let God. It is a battle that we are to be active participants in. Because sinful desires, if they are allowed to triumph in our lives, will ultimately destroy us. 
So believer, put off sinful desires. Christian, if the Christian life is like a war against our sinful desires, how are you doing? Do you see yourself in a war being waged against you? How do you fight your sinful desires? Have you ever considered that fighting sin with the help of others is one of the important ways that we are called to build one another up? In fact, the Christian life is designed to be lived out with others in a local church where we can share in each other's joys and share in each other's burdens and sorrows to build one another up to full maturity. While it might seem awkward at first, being willing to engage in open and honest conversation to build one another up is essential for the Christian life. The reason for how Christians live by resisting our sinful desires is simple. Christians are to be witnesses to the world because God uses our witness for his kingdom. So the Christian life is both a battle and it's a witness. The reason why we are to resist our flesh is that it will destroy us if we don't. But a close second is that our suffering is one means that God uses for others to come to faith in Jesus. So, for example, I once knew this guy who, in order to stand out, um, every Friday night he would go to this thing called a mall back when there were stores that gathered inside these buildings in a mall. And, and every Friday night, he, he wanted to make some sort of statement, and so he would dress up in a kilt and walk around the mall just to get people's attention. Well, friends, that's not what it means to be an exile or a stranger in the world, although that might be a little bit strange. Better than kilts on Fridays is a behavior that is so distinct that it draws in people who once thought that Christianity was a joke. Christian, er, Christians must live exemplary lives with the kinds of good deeds that will make unbelievers take notice. Right? Christians today are often considered immoral for positions that the Bible clearly states. Christians are called today, they're considered closed-minded and unloving. And while this feels new to us, in our lives, if we were to look at Christian history, we would see that that's just the norm. Peter calls Christians to live such good lives that will fend off any suggestion that Christians are practicing evil. One of my favorite examples is when Baptists first kind of came to America. Uh, there was this rumor going around that because Baptists did not baptize infants, that we ate them. Uh, and so, uh, thankfully, I can tell you that's not true. Baptists have never eaten uh, people before. In fact, there's actually, uh, I, I have, I have this, this, this letter where this guy is writing back to his family in England, uh, even though they had Baptists in England too, so that's fine. Um, and, he, and he was saying how he went to this Baptist service and he was nervous because he heard that they ate people, but he was pleasantly surprised that that did not happen. Well, friends, in a very real, important way, uh, 
there are all sorts of suggestions that Christians are immoral and evil and would put evil upon others. And Peter calls us to live such distinctly Christian lives that, that just, those accusations just flow right off the bat. Christians, one way I think that we should particularly look to live this way is in our care about life both before and after the womb. You know, one of the recent positions is that if we were actually about life, then Christians would be more concerned with life after birth, not just before birth. So Christian, make certain that our lives demonstrate love for people because they are made in the image of God after birth also, not just before birth. So friends, get involved in the Pregnancy Resource Center in Cambridge, but also serve in our children's ministry. Consider foster care or adoption. Friends, the goal is to live lives with the type of care for others that non-Christians can take notice and it might even provoke them to glorify God because they see what goes on in our lives. You see, whether we realize it or not, our good works are actually intended for the mission of God. The way that we are to live as Christians is designed to actually speak something with our lives about the greatness of God so that those who are unbelievers will have the same experience that Peter described last week, that they will be one day called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. So the life of believers is to be so morally beautiful and compelling to, to some to help bring them to saving faith that God would be glorified on the day of his return. Right? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 at the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And maybe one of the most noticeable ways to abstain from the sinful desires comes uh, by living in a way that the world takes notice is by serving like Jesus. Look at verse 13 with me. Uh, these are topics that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks, and it's done with a missional focus in mind, with the purpose of God using it to bring others into the kingdom. And so Peter gives us three examples of ways that we are to serve like Jesus, and that is in regards to governing authorities in a slave-master relationship and in a husband-wife relationship. We're going to look at two of those things this morning. And so if you want to have a gospel impact in our community, something that's going to be stronger than flyers that we hand out, something more helpful than Easter invitations, is going to be the individual conduct of our lives. If we want to lose influence in our community, if we want to lose influence with our neighbors, it comes when Christians, instead of being transformed by the gospel, look just like everyone else who don't have the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. 
So missional living part one, Peter says, be subject to every human institution. And he gives a list. He says, not just be to the emperor who's supreme or also to governors who are sent by the emperor. So, so not just the White House, but all the way down to the, to the State House in Columbus, even down to the very village of New Concord. Governments are not perfect. Some are better than others, yet they actually all restrain evil from some degree, even if we don't think they restrain it enough. So the main theme in this entire section is submitting to these different authorities. Uh, and Peter is actually being consistent with what else the New Testament says. So, for example, when we think of Romans 13, 1, where Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Or Romans 13, 5, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. Or think of Titus 3, where Paul writes to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Christian, live a life in the social roles that are expected in society so that when unbelievers would want to criticize your behavior, instead they could say, Wow, you aren't a three-headed, green-eyed monster like I thought you were and i'm actually drawn to what you believe about christ friends if you don't think that's possible i can tell you it is possible uh, uh when i first moved here there was uh, an individual who uh, at, who worked at the university and and uh we were meeting for 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 just a, a common meeting and the first thing that this individual said to me was brian you aren't the five-headed green-eyed monster i thought you were and i said well good I'm glad. Uh, and we actually became friends. And, and it was a really good relationship. And so, friends, believers should submit to these human authorities for the Lord's sake. Remember, this is a missional reality. It's not because we agree with every single governmental decision. It's actually not about us. It's for the Lord's sake. It's because our relationship with God that we can respond the way that we do to these human institutions, right? Peter was very aware that, that there were, from the Old Testament, that there were rulers that would resist God, right? Think of Pharaoh, think of Nebuchadnezzar. Christians could hardly forget that Christ was unjustly condemned under Pontius Pilate or that James was put to death by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. So how, how do we justify submitting to corrupt and unjust institutions? Well, I think there's four ways. We can justify submitting to these governing authorities. First, by trusting that, that the will of God is ultimately good, even if it doesn't feel good at the moment. Look at what it says in verse 15. Peter begins it with saying, for this is the will of God of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the, ignorant of fool, the ignorance of foolish people. So if people are going to accuse Christians of immoral behavior, living lives honoring God in faithful living should actually silence those false accusations. 
Number two, we can do this because remember from verse 13, it is for the Lord's sake. It's not because the human institution is amazing. It's because we, as Christians, serve God first. Number three, in verse 16, Peter did not see human authorities as ultimate. Christians are free. The supreme authority for Peter was not the emperor, but God himself. So the call to submit does not rule out exceptions for God as the ultimate authority. In fact, the phrase human institution, that, that, that is probably how your English translates it, that's not how the Greek actually is written. The, the actual phrase that these authorities are called are human creatures. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, there was this popular cult about the emperor. And Peter is reminding the readers that it's only a human institution. It is not divine. These rulers are merely creatures created by God and existing under his lordship. And then finally, also in verse 16, we can submit to governing authorities because Christians are actually first servants of God. Believers do not enjoy unrestricted freedom. Our freedom is exercised under God's authority. Believers are God's servants first. Think of the scripture reading that, that we uh, read this morning. We are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness to God. And so genuine freedom is experienced only by those who are God's servants. One is either a slave to sin or a slave of God. Because true liberty, according to the New Testament, means that there is freedom to finally do what is right. True freedom liberates believers to do what is good instead of being a slave to sin. But the warning is that those who use freedom as a license for evil reveal that they aren't actually free because a life of wickedness is the very definition of slavery. Peter does not call Christians to submit to human authorities regardless of the circumstances, right? The ultimate loyalty of Christians is to God, not Caesar. I think it'd be right for us to say here, the, our ultimate allegiance for us as Christians is to God, not a particular political party. Friends, we can also see that submission is not out of weakness. Christians actually are to obey out of strength because of their freedom. Think of, of what Jesus said in, in Matthew 17. Uh, it's, it's that story when, when they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of not paying a tax, right? It's that weird one where Jesus is like, well, go catch a fish. There's a coin inside the fish. You guys remember that? Well, here's what he says in Matthew 17. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open up its mouth, you will find a shekel. And so Jesus is saying, look, we're free from the human institution and yet for their sake, we're happy to pay the tax. So Peter gives us four commands to live honorable lives from verse 17. The first one is that we are called, therefore, to honor everyone. The Christian life 
should be uh, notably characterized by showing honor that the world does not generally show towards other people. In fact, we are to show honor to everyone. We're to treat every person with dignity and respect and value because all people are made in God's image. The second thing that Peter commands us to do is to love the brotherhood. There's a reality where while we are all made in the image of God, we have been made into God's special people, a holy people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession we looked at last week. And, and therefore, we are, this union between fellow Christians is described in the Bible as a family, which means that there is a special commitment among fellow believers. We are to be committed to one another, not just when times are easy, but especially when times are hard. I don't kick my kids out because they spilled their milk. You know what I'm saying? We've worked together on that. The other command that Christians are to have characterized their lives in a way that is honorable is that we are to fear God. Think back to our call to worship where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Believers are to honor the king. We're to show him respect because of his office, but we don't need to fear the king. We don't need to fear someone in any governmental power. Only God is to be feared because ultimate authority belongs to God. Ultimate authority does not belong to an emperor. It does not belong to a White House. What we're going to see next week is that ultimate authority does not even belong to husbands. We are to fear God because ultimate authority belongs to him alone. And the final thing that we are to do is to honor the emperor. Fearing God, having a, a faithful love to the brotherhood does not exempt us from honoring the position that God has placed this individual in. It doesn't exempt us from showing honor to those in governmental institutions. Uh, but ironically, uh, if we are showing honor to everyone, uh, Peter has just put the emperor on the same page as everyone else. So you can decide what that looks like. Friends, we are to boldly follow Christ's example of suffering to missionally display our saving shepherd. That's our goal. That is our goal. Let's look at the second part here. Verses 18 to 25, Christ's example. Let me pick it up with where Peter goes. He says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued 
entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So like a master chef, Peter is peeling back another layer of this onion to, to unpack what missional living looks like, even in the midst of suffering. What does living a life as a Christian in regards to recognizing that we want the non-believing world to say, why do you live this way? Who is the God that you serve? So missional living, missional living part two. Be subject to not just every human institution, but here Peter is giving the example of masters and servants. Peter directly mentions slaves and servants, but, but these slaves function as examples for all Christians. So the principle applies to all believers here, not just only if they are slaves in his original audience. Peter calls them to do the same things that all Christians are to do for all for human authorities that are previous, to be subject to them or to submit to them. It's interesting, Peter doesn't call them to obey while gritting their teeth, but to obey in a way that reflects a heart that trusts God. So servants or slaves were to do it with all respect. And it might make sense if their masters were good, but, but Peter quickly says that this is whether they were just or unjust. And I think because our history as a nation, it's important for us to remember how did people become slaves in the Greco-Roman world? Well, they were either captured in wars, or they were kidnapped, or they were born into a slave household, or those who had economic hardship might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. And so while many slaves lived miserably, especially those who worked in mines, uh, also true in the Greco-Roman world was that slaves served as doctors, as teachers, as managers, as musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. In fact, it would not be unusual for a slave in that day to be better educated than their master. And so given our history in America, I think it's worth noting that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race or ethnicity. Uh, and American slave owners discouraged the education of slaves. So I think it's right for us to say that there were significant differences than our own sad history here in the United States. But at the end of the day, uh, those slaves in that day still did not have independent existence. Slaves in that day still did not have legal rights. And so uh, I do not actually think that ancient slavery was somehow automatically more humane than modern slavery was either, just different. And so Peter, using the example of a servant slave, calls Christians to continue to live justly. Peter reminds these Christians of their motivation in verse 19. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
So it's not actually about suffering. It's about honoring God. It's about being mindful of God in every sphere of life. See, the reason the slaves were to submit to masters is because of their relationship with God. Right? People can suffer for all sorts of reasons, and not all of them are good reasons. Remember, Christian lives, whether we are at home or away, whether we are enslaved or free, Christians are to be missional. We are to live in a way that commends God to the looking, onlooking world. So salvation came in Christ through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead so that we would live lives honoring God and one way to do good and, and yet receive unjust treatment is still gracious in God's sight. In fact, verses 19 and 20 kind of go together. And they, they, they say this, those who suffer unjustly are rewarded by God. Slaves who endure unjust suffering because of their relationship with God will be rewarded by God. I think that's the main point Peter's making here. The instruction given to slaves serves as a model for all believers for how we are to respond to injustice in our lives. But don't you, did you ever wonder to yourself, why didn't the New Testament writers, why didn't they criticize the institution of slavery? Why didn't they advocate for its over, overthrow? Uh, we, we look at that now and we think, man, they certainly seem to be missing something. Well, the ending of slavery uh, was outside of the question at this point. And so for Peter to rant against slavery would not actually be helpful for these ordinary Christians who are dealing with intense suffering. The New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God. And so the New Testament writers concentrated on a godly response of believers even in mistreatment. So to be clear, the New Testament nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. Slavery is not rooted in creation. It is not an institution ordained by God as something honorable. Peter's words on slavery, I don't think should be interpreted as an endorsement of the system, even if he does not denounce the institution. In fact, we can see that in history, it shows the impact of the Christian faith on social matters. One of the changes under Christian influence was the ending of slavery. So Christians, of course, though, have also been inflicted, have inflicted evil on others for centuries as well. So suffering for doing good isn't unusual for Christians. But Peter says in verse 21, it's what we have been called to do. Think about that. Christian, suffering isn't to be sought out as if suffering itself is commendable. Suffering will come as we faithfully live out faith in Christ. And so Peter insists that suffering for doing wrong deserves no credit, but if one suffers for doing what is right, a reward is fitting. Suffering isn't only about the reward, though. Suffering as a Christian is actually patterned after our Savior. Notice the type of suffering in verses 22 to 23. Christ's suffering functions as an example to believers. 
so uh, James, uh, my wife was out of town this last week, and so while also working, I also, I also got to do all the homeschooling. And James, who's three, is trying to learn how to write letters. And, and my wife has this ingenious thing where, where on like a glossy thing, she has a piece of paper and he can take a dry erase marker and practice forming the letters and writing it. And he just, he's like, where's my ABC notebook? And so all day long, he just kept going through the ABCs and trying to write on it, okay? So James is trying to write. He's learning by example how to write. Well, the word example here, that Christ's suffering function as an example to believers is actually a word that is used of children who trace over the letters of the alphabet in order to learn to write them correctly. That is the type of example that Christ's suffering is for us. Jesus did not suffer for doing wrong. Jesus suffered as an example that we might follow in his footsteps, Christian. Christian, our lives are to point others to the greatness of God, and that very well might be through our suffering. So don't waste your suffering. If you have lost a loved one and had to work through that grief, know that God can use your grief and how he has helped you in that in order to point others to find hope in Christ. If you have unfortunately gone through other tragedies. Friends, don't waste your suffering. Instead, let it be used for God and his kingdom to proclaim the greatness of God. Our lives are to point others to the greatness of God. And so suffering should not be seen as unusual or that God's, God's love has somehow abandoned us. Notice how Christ's suffering is specific. In verse 21, it says, because Christ also suffered for you. This describes Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. Jesus' atonement for sinners is, is featured in verses 24 to 25, right? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, wow, do Christians really just like suffering? No, the answer is no, 100%, okay? Give me a hangnail, and I think I got to get a cast on my arm or something. If you've ever wondered, though, a concise understanding of, of what Christians believe and why they're willing to suffer, this is it right here in verses 24 and 25. We're willing to put ourselves on the line, obeying the very words of God here in this letter from 1 Peter, because Jesus himself took our sins on his body to hang on the cross so that we would die to our sins and live in righteousness. In fact, by Jesus' wounds, by Jesus going to the cross, we have been healed. We were straying like sheep, but now we've returned through the sacrifice of Christ. We've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Non-Christian, I'm so glad you're here today. I wonder what are you willing to suffer for? 
What would you be willing to die for? Jesus did both for us. Not so that this would be our best life now, but that we would follow in his example and know the promise of eternity to come with him when our suffering might be complete. So if you're a non-Christian, won't you come to him today? Won't you know this Savior who is willing to suffer and die in your place? If you want to know more about that, come talk to me afterward. What a hopeful conversation that can be. Notice that Jesus died so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Right? By his wounds, quoting Isaiah 53, we are healed. We were strained like lost sheep, but because of Christ's death, we now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So friends, consider how our suffering is missional. Christ suffered, and now we have repented and come to know him and to know his salvation, so that when we suffer, it is actually a giant sign for other people to come and know the mercies of God as well. Consider how the suffering in your life, even right now could be missional for the kingdom it's not by accident it's actually following the pattern of our savior we are to boldly follow christ's example of suffering so that we can missionally display our saving shepherd in our lives so the christian life is not much like a pleasure cruise it often involves suffering our suffering for following jesus follows the pattern of Christ and our suffering isn't more than Christ himself suffered on the cross for us. And so suffering is used by God in our lives for displaying the greatness of the kingdom. See, God doesn't need our strength. He has plenty of it. But God does want our weaknesses to display his greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for wanting to, to reduce suffering and mistake thinking that, that any suffering must be bad. Lord, we recognize that suffering never feels good. It, it, it doesn't feel helpful. It feels hopeless. It feels unending. It, it feels isolating. But God, help us to see that, that when we suffer, for being Christ's, that, that we are actually following the path of our Savior. God, help us to endure suffering with patience and with lives that we are so ready to continue to live out faithfully that it would be something that would draw our neighbors, our friends down the street, our, our non-Christian friends in town, Lord, that, that the way that we would suffer would be a beeline to them knowing and cherishing Jesus. So God, help us not to miss what you're doing in our suffering. Help us not to lose hope in our suffering. Lord, help us to live such distinctly Christian lives, even in our suffering, because you have given us a living hope no matter what suffering we go through. God, help us to live as sojourners and exiles so that we would be living as people who live 
for our home in eternity with you. God, would you do that good work in us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.